Everyone at the post office is delighted with the new profile, ma'am, which they feel to be an elegant reflection of Her Majesty's transition from young woman to... Old bet. A mother of four and settled sovereign. Hmm. The postmaster general himself commented that the two images, the young and the slightly older queen, are almost identical. Postmaster Bevins is very kind. He's also a barefaced liar. Uh, just the tiniest changes in the hair. A great many changes. But there we are. Age is rarely kind to anyone. Nothing one can do about it. One just has to get on with it. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. My name's Edith Bowman, and this is the podcast for the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown. This podcast will follow the show episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. It's been two years since season two ended. The entire cast has changed and season three will be under plenty of scrutiny from its highly devoted audience. There's a lot at stake and I spoke to show creator Peter Morgan, who is anxiously awaiting the public reactions to season three. I can't bear this part. If only we could just make these films and never have to show them. I mean, not no, because the, the moment where it goes out in the scrutiny and it's nerve-wracking. Today we're talking about episode one, titled Olding. In the 50s, the KGB opened an agent recruitment file on future British Prime Minister Harold Wilson, giving him the code name Olding, hence the title. We'll be discussing events brought up in the episode, so if you haven't watched it yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we hear from Nina Gold and Robert Stern, casting royalty in their own rights. They're responsible for casting many critically acclaimed film and television series, and it was a real treat to hear them discuss the tools of their trade. But first, I had the great privilege to speak with showrunner, writer, and creator, Peter Morgan. So I am here in a lovely part of London. Peter Morgan very kindly invited us into his house um, thank you so much for allowing us to come here to deep dive into the Crown <laughs> Series 3. What's a showrunner? How would you describe what a showrunner is to someone who doesn't know what a showrunner is? I think it's the person who ultimately, you know, has to take responsibility for some of the bigger tonal decisions. Ultimately, when it comes to casting decisions, the hiring of directors, that really the buck stops with them. The series or that people enjoy the most are, are those that are authored. And that ultimately, there has to be an author. There are lots of other crowns that could be written out there. And lots of other people could tackle this material. But, you know, for better or for worse, we're doing it this way with, with me doing it. Showrunner sounds like it has similarities to the Queen. Oh, I don't think so. Uh, uh, no, no. Uh, uh, please don't say that. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it is sort of five full-time jobs to do this job. And, and you have to, it, I think, in order to stay alive, you have to let three of those full-time jobs go. And, and I'm much more focused on the writing and the editing and the casting. The, the series is about to be you know, unveiled to fans and the world. How, how is your emotional state at that point in terms of this season is people are about to start watching it? 
I, I, I can't bear this part. I re- no, really, I can't. Why? It's not that I can't. I, I, I very much look forward to people seeing it and I very much hope people enjoy it. But, but the, uh, the, I, the, I don't know. The, I used to have this conversation with Ron Howard a lot, with uh, Stephen Frears a lot. We just can't bear, you know, if only we could just make these films and never have to show them. I mean, not no, because the, the moment where it goes out in the scrutiny and it, it's 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 nerve wracking. And um, and I think particularly nerve wracking at the moment because, you know, in these streaming wars that are going on um, uh, where where, you know, you recognise what's at stake for the companies that are making this. And um, it becomes about much more. It's suddenly what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is it suddenly becomes about so many other things. Yeah. Whereas up until now, it's really just been a group of us that know each other very, very well, working as hard as we can and as devotedly as we can to try and polish something as best we can, given all the limitations you have and all the constraints and all the challenges in terms of time or exhaustion or resources or bad luck or all the things that stand in between you and making the perfect episode. And, and, uh, we do the, you know, we all sit there like in a little cottage industry and do our very best. And suddenly comes the moment where the the hangar doors open (laughs) and it gets taken out and you just fear for it in the way that you would fear for, you know, letting a child out into the world, you know? So where, how long ago then were you writing series three? I, I was probably writing it a couple of years ago, uh, but but in some way or another, I would have been thinking about it a lot longer, even prior to that. And it, and the roots of all this go way back, you know. Um, and 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 so the whole thing kind of feels like one long journey. You know, it started really with a with a with a film. Uh, I suppose I wrote for television, uh, you know, about the relationship between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, and that was in nineteen. No, it was in 2002, I think, 2002. So this whole thing feels like one long continuous journey because mm. that started with Tony Blair. And then when it came to writing The Queen, the film The Queen, that then only became interesting for me with Tony Blair in it because it was a relationship between the monarch and the prime minister. Mm-hmm. That I mean, everyone always talks about the royal family, but underpinning all this has always been the relationship between head of state and, and prime minister. Which is beautifully explored in series three, and we'll get onto that in a minute. When you're starting with a constructing a, a series and those episodes, do you know your start and your end point, and then you kind of work out how you split it up into those episodes and, and the narratives and the stories and the characters that you want to write about? Yeah, I, I, I'm a I, I, I'm a planner. Yeah, I'm a planner. <laughs> I mean, I think there are other people who are more OCD and more planny than me. <laughs> yeah. And and I, you know, I was once on a panel, and um, on that panel were you know six or seven writers, and every you know we were asked what our process was, and and it ranged mm-hmm. from the obsessive, deranged planning to the quite OCD planning, <laughs> yeah. um, and to some uh, one writer. Um, he just started writing and he had no idea where it was going to go, which felt like the purest art in mm-hmm. its own way. And he he was from South America. And when he spoke about writing, it sounded so much more interesting and sexy than when I speak about writing. I need a little bit more of an outline and an idea where I'm going. And so I figure it all out. And, and to me, the figuring out is at least 80% of the writing. So 
series three, um, we left series two and we also left a cast behind as well. Um, where do we find ourselves at the start of series three? Uh, we, it's, <laughs> it, take you back a few years. Uh, yes, uh, uh, we, well, we find, I mean, I think first and foremost, we find ourselves with a new cast, you mm. know, and, 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 and the first and, and, and overwhelming problem was how to, how to introduce them and, and, and what to do. And, and I always think it's probably quite a good idea to just declare it, you know, just what the hell. The, look, the choice was simple. You, you either go with putting a whole lot of makeup or prosthetics mm-hmm. on somebody, um, or, or, or you just say, look, it's ridiculous. You can't ask someone in their late 20s or, or 30 to play someone who's 50 and, and really understand it. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you can approximate it, but you can't draw on something within yourself. I, you know, I, th- I think that when you are middle-aged, and I speak, <laughs> you know, and bits start to ache... And, and and things don't work in the same way, and you, you you've already had some of the stuffing knocked out of you, and and you wear that not just you know you can put lines on someone's face, um, and you can maybe even digitally age them, but you can't breathe the fatigue of life and the bruises of life into a face, and I don't think anybody can get to you know fifty or mid forties late you know and the age span in this in 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 these two seasons now, three and four, for the Queen is in between sort of early 40s and early 60s. And, you know, life's had its, it's had a go at you by then. You know, you show you have a few scars, you have a few bruises, and, and you walk with slightly hunched shoulders. And when you sit down, you go, ah, <laughs> you let out a little groan of relief. <laughs> Even the Queen does Yes. <laughs> She's allowed to. Yes. And, 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 and so I figured, you know, we've got to get some... People entering middle age into that, and and so I knew it would be big, a big bump um, for everyone. And of course, that's a bit of a high wire act because Claire was so fabulous. She, you know, she might have been a little bit more considerate and been slightly less fabulous, and that would have meant <laughs> yeah, no pressure, right? Because it's not easy. Did you knowing that you were, you know, after you, there was going to be a new cast, not just for the Queen, but for 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 a lot of the characters? Did did you write it differently? No, no, I really didn't actually. And, and, and for a while we were even thinking of, you know, talking to some of the actors and saying, look, some of the things that Matt Smith did, the way he sort of moved, the fidgetiness, um, could you repeat that? Could you, could you, could you echo that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it just so happens that Tobias Menzies, who plays, you know, Prince Philip, he just isn't a fidgety type. Mm-hmm. He's a much more rooted type. Yeah. And so he didn't, he elected not to do that. And I don't think it matters. I don't think that suddenly Prince Philip seems to have stopped fidgeting. You do know if that man wins today, he'll want us out. Oh, Wilson. And half his cabinet would be made up of rabid anti-monarchists. We want our heads on spikes. Vive la révolution. Except I doubt they speak French in Halifax or Uddersfield, where it is from. I even heard a rumour that he's a KGB spy. Mr Wilson? That's ridiculous. Who did you hear that from? Uh, A friend of mine at the lunch club. He had a whole theory about Wilson being turned while on a trade mission to Russia. Said he even had a a KGB coat name. Holding. I do think the baton pass, you know, and that's sort of how I've always thought it. Yeah. It's like a relay race and you pass a baton. And that they've, they've actually... 
they haven't done, they haven't mimicked what the previous actors were doing. They've just taken the baton and done what they do. And it almost feels like what you were talking about, about that experience as well. It feels like those characters are at this place now and they've got that, you know, that experience has almost changed them as well. And and that opening scene that you have for that first episode is, it's so clever because you kind of immediately forget, even though there is, you know, Claire is referenced in there in that scene, um, visually, you're kind of already on that journey with the... Mm. with the new version did you take a little bit of time did it take a few well while to come to what that opening scene was going to be and how you would start it no uh, that was one of those ones that was mercifully uh, you know a fluke uh you know it just came and and I did it and everyone went oh yeah that's quite a good idea and and it was waved through you know, by the border guards, uh, that, you know, <laughs> they all went, yeah, all right. They looked at the papers and thought, yeah, all right. Uh, Stop, you're through. Yes, you're through. The idea got through and, uh, um, and then we, you know, we just did it. And, and, and actually the impact it's had or the enjoyment it seems to have created uh, among people is, is disproportionate. Mm to the effort that it took. It was a real bit of fluke. Mostly it's the other way around. Mostly you toil and toil and toil and people don't even notice it. And mm. this one happens to come f- quite quickly. It just went, oh, why not that? The stamp. Did you know who was going to be playing all the characters when you were writing it? No, I, I knew I knew Olivia would because we went to see her, uh, we went to see her, you know, um, what feels like a thousand years ago now. Uh, she happened to be a list of one. We hadn't considered anybody else. Wow. And yeah, no one else. Why uh, her then? Why just her? What was it about her? First and foremost, I think, the every woman aspect. Because I, I, I think that, you know, the Queen manages to be both um, the grandest woman mm-hmm. uh, in the country and yet entirely approachable, it seems. And... Um, and uh, Olivia has something of that. She She feels like someone who is very likeable, very connectable with. And that, of course, doesn't in any way suggest how complex both a woman she is and an actress. Mm. And I think the hardest thing about playing the Queen, I think, is, is to walk that very thin line between being clearly a person who is shy and private and yet someone where one suspects there's quite a lot of little Russian dolls within within them that have been locked away and hidden away and uh, I felt pretty certain that Olivia could could really bring something to that and anyway it was a list of one Olivia and then the phone call lasted one second we said would you like to yes (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, it was it was one of those oh well that was nice and so I thought well we probably should meet for lunch and and it was a lunch that was before she'd done the part of Queen Anne for which she won the Oscar. So she was. She said, I've got to eat a lot now because I've got to get fat. So she spoke with her mouth full throughout the entire lunch, but <laughs> she was, uh, uh, you know, excited and happy and giddy and and then, you know, was sworn to secrecy for quite a long time. I mean, it was long, it was long before the second season came out. So we, we also knew that it was going to be Olivia uh, and, and had to be quiet about it. But um, then you wrote... Uh, you wrote- it for her you knew she was going to be 
I wrote it for her, but I didn't change the voice. Yeah. When you change a cast, the fact that you've got the same writer and the same locations and the same, the same heads of department filming it, it really is only the face that it's, it's it, you know, everything else has not changed. Yeah, apart from their experience in life. Yeah. That's the thing that kind of... And what they bring to it, because of yeah. course all actors bring themselves into yeah. it too. I'm so glad you came. It gives me the chance to apologise in person. What for? There's no need to understand. All you need to know is that I misjudged you terribly and I'd like to take this opportunity to say sorry. To take a closer look at the challenges of casting a whole new set of actors for season three, we spoke with Emmy and BAFTA award-winning casting directors Nina Gold and Robert Stern. I can't remember when, a time when we haven't been talking about doing The Crown. <laughs> Feels like we've been talking about it for... A long time. We even started talking about the casting of this incarnation of it as early as we were talking about the first incarnation of it. While we were shooting the first two, there was a lot of ongoing conversation with Peter about who's going to be the next Queen. And it used to be a regular discussion, normally around 7.45am is Peter's favourite casting chat time, we've discovered. (laughs) Possibly even earlier if we're up. (laughs) I mean, it was very, very clear that the dream successor to Claire was going to be Olivia. And fortunately, she agreed. Mm. I don't think it has been done before. It's kind of, you know, fascinating proposition to have something that's up and going, everybody's made a connection with, and then go again. And in a sense, you're starting with a blank piece of paper for the next two seasons. But at the same time, we had to have an awareness of what had gone before yeah. and the qualities that they had brought to it and the particular things about each actor that they brought to each of their characters. The, their version of yeah. the characters. So, so, in fact, you're trying to cast the the character and, at the same time, the character that's been informed by the previous person playing yeah. the character. So whatever alchemy is taking place between the actor and the original character, you have to bear both of those things in mind when you're looking at the next incarnation of it. The first incarnation of, well, let's say, the Queen, what Claire did with it, I guess the kind of qualities that Claire brought to it were qualities that then inform the way we're going to portray the Queen in the next version and that with Olivia that seemed to be the thing that because Olivia and Claire aren't really anything like each other in reality but that they both had this incredibly identifiable kind of access to their humanity and to make this character of the queen who is you know we don't know who she is as a real person but they bring their transparent, Hmm. empathetic humanity to it in a way that makes you believe in her as a real human being. And that's what they really have in common. I think that's right. I think Peter didn't write a kind of brittle, aloof queen, and that's not what Claire did. And you get a sense of a woman who's longing to have a more ordinary life um, and a woman who's dealing with kind of inter-family relationships as well as juggling a job that she's very dedicated to. There's a great access to that woman through that approach to writing that character. And that's what Claire did so magnificently, didn't she? And 
what Olivia, what Olivia does, really does brilliantly really as well. Yeah. well. The casting, when you're with these real life characters, there's a degree of a kind of technical specificity that the actors have to have. You know, being able to study the voices, the mat. We're not looking for impersonations for people, but they have to be able to look at the voices and their physical mannerisms and use some of those elements as hooks on yeah. which to hang their own version of the character. And to bring enough of that to make it seem like the real person, but completely not make it a look-alike, sound-alike. Yeah, or but, send them up. It's about yeah. finding a way to exist in the character that gives them freedom, but also you can identify with the real-life character. And the exciting thing is when people come in and you don't know that they're going to make a connection with the historical character they're looking at, but there's a some bulb goes on somewhere and they've made that connection and able to fly with it. I mean, it's really quite enjoyable if you find somebody who's going to play it brilliantly and also has some way of making you... of even if they don't look like them, really, of kind of capturing their essence in such a way that you recognise the real person in the fictional version. I think it's just really um, wonderful that to get the chance to work on something that goes from season after season and see all the actors kind of gain in their confidence as they're doing it. To work through the various decades has been quite fun. To be part of a story that you can really feel and watch develop and unfold and in a kind of really progressive storytelling manner is really interesting. Oh, it's really exciting. We're holding our breath slightly to to see what everybody thinks. Back with Peter. Now, we're just delving into the carefully woven themes of politics and the monarchy, which appear in various degrees in each episode of The Crown. What's always been a lovely narrative, which you mentioned earlier, was this political narrative... That, that runs with that relationship between, you know, Crown and, and kind of Parliament sort of thing. And within this first episode, we have a whole big shift. And there's there's a couple of really beautiful scenes as well, in particular, where she goes to visit Churchill, who's mm. very poorly. Sir, the Queen. Dear Winston. Your Majesty. Don't move. How are you? Oh, gripped. Well, it's a proper nail-biter. We'd better keep an eye on that one. I can't imagine what that would be like. Having a Prime Minister one didn't trust. When one thinks what it was like with you. I was a terrible bully. You were my guardian angel. The roof over my head. The spine in my back. The iron in my heart. You were the compass that steered and directed me. Not just me, all of us. Where would Great Britain be without its greatest Britain? And that was a really special relationship that I think that's what I, one of the many things I love about the series is the way you explore her relationship with these men who, you know, they kind of come and go in terms of they last in office for a certain amount of time. And if you look at through her entire monarchy, how many she went through or is going through, it's quite extraordinary. But why is that an important part of the narrative to continue? And what are those relationships and what do they bring, do you think, to the... I mean, first on the Churchill of it all, I mean, we really agonised about that because to bring John Lithgow over and to hire him and just to do one scene... Um, there was a lot of hand wringing about that, but the 
And, 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 and we have this strict rule, which is that the minute a prime minister is out of office, you don't see them again. Um, the, the, the reason why ultimately we decided to go back to, to having Churchill for a scene is because it felt like another bit of vulnerability for her. You know, that, that now he's, he was a lost connection with her father um, and also he was her first prime minister, you know, and... And she'd so relied on him, but now, of course, by this point in her in her life and her reign, she you know she's confident. She's had three or four prime ministers by now. I, I liked how vulnerable it made her feel. And and in this episode, in the first episode, of course, we're exploring, you know, the idea that not only you know has her might Downing Street be compromised, but also Buckingham Palace is compromised. Um, as you know, as we're in the Cold War now uh, by a traitor and. And, and it, she's, she's left feeling even more vulnerable without Churchill there somehow to protect her. It's a certain kind of England that's gone when he goes. You know, a po- the, the post-Churchillian landscape, you know, is, is uh, suddenly very different. And you, in, instead of him, you have Harold Wilson. And uh, the, the, the thing that you mentioned about uh, prime ministers and the men and, in, in her life, it, it's useful. I've always found it useful when thinking about her relationship with those men, to think of them in, in family terms. And, and Churchill was a grandfather as a paradigm. And then Macmillan, very much a father. I don't particularly count um, Douglas Hume. He was so brief and he was a family friend. But, but Wilson is the first... You'll understand what I mean when I say husband paradigm. You yeah. know, he, he's the same... He's roughly the same age, mm-hmm. and or he's within a decade, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that also necessarily creates a very different relationship and then you move through all the prime ministers and you get to someone like Blair, who would have been the first son. That's such an interesting way. And, and Ed Miliband, had he, there was a brief moment, of course, uh, he would have been a grandson. What about Thatcher? Uh, well, twin. Oh. Because, I mean, they're six months apart. You know, so that's, that's very much one of those emblems, you know, the eagle with two heads <laughs> facing in opposite directions. You know, uh, Thatcher yeah. both very, very, you know, a lot of similarities and, and, and a lot of differences. Mm. And they were born just six months apart. Wow. So they've got an awful lot in common, not, not least their gender, um, which, you know, sometimes the things that you think will bring two people together actually drives them apart. It's wonderful to watch Jason Watkins, I think, a great piece of casting for Harold Wilson. Well, I suppose I should kick things off with an apology. Whatever for? Well, winning. I'm aware of your affection for my predecessor and doubtless you'd have preferred him to have continued in office. And I can see the attraction of someone like Balshalik, someone you can chat with about the racing, someone well-bred, high-born, who knows how to hold his cutlery as opposed to a ruffian like me. Hardly. I, um, I'd worked with him when we, we did a film called The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries about the man who was wrongly accused of murder in, in Bristol. Yeah. And, and Jason was just sensational in that. And he cleaned up with all the prizes. And, and I really... It was one piece of casting where I got more involved than usual. And it was just because I'd been in the trenches with him and, and, and I knew what he could do. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad you, you like what he's done. I, I think he's sensational. We have these points in, in the show that we've seen on TV or we know have happened, but then that's the wonderful thing in the way that you've written and how well you know these characters in this world, that the way that you write them, we absolutely believe it. And how do you do that? How do you well, decide it, what's... What you 
I think fabricate that, and what you creative license and you know as, as a as a dramatist and as a writer to well there's to- a lot of different answers to that I mean the first no honestly but the first bit with regard to the characters I mean I think they feel consistent because they are consistent to the character that I imagine they are or that I've created that they are mm-hmm. that is quite different from they are you know it could be that I'm quite wide of the mark on a number of occasions but I'm consistently wide of the mark and therefore it feels feels like a consistent characterization. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I've spent no time with these people, none. Uh, I, I don't really want to. I'm interested in them and their predicament. Um, I'm interested in their, in the challenge of living within this extraordinary, you know, conundrum, this, this uh, very, very specific anthropological challenge, you know, that they have. But I, but I, you know, I don't know if I've got her right. I don't know how. I, I'm, I'm just guessing. Uh, it, it is. It's, it's. I'm. Tr- it's like well-intentioned, well-informed guessing. But it's just guessing, and and you're joining the dots. And, and ultimately, as the dramatist, you've got to, you know, you've got to try and provide uh, something plausible that joins two moments. Because what you know, the one great advantage of these people is that. Everything they do is minuted. You know, we've got court circulars. We know where they were on any, mm. at any given time on any given day. And then to that, you then add things like, well, what, what was their age? Then you, you add your own experience of life. Well, what sort of things were I, was I thinking or feeling at that particular time in my life? Or what is it like to be married? Or what is it like to have a son? Or what is it like to have a daughter? Or what is it like to be envious of a brother? Uh, and what is it like to feel eclipsed? And these things are universal, and it it feels heretical when you impose them on these people because we assume or we like to think of them as people without those issues or we resent them for their humanity. Mm-hmm. But actually their humanity is... It, it, they are no different to us and, and yet they're nothing like us. It's that thing you keep going back to. Mm. You never sway towards, you know, kind of rooting for one person or the other. You keep that balance really brilliant in terms of there's no villain really you know in terms of in, in a situation it's very much kind of it's important to have both sides of the argument almost is that easy to do in terms of showing them as full rounded characters showing their failures showing their strengths I think they do that for us mm. I mean you know uh, I mean there's a lot that's hard to like about a lot of them uh, and and there's also a lot of pity and compassion you can have because it, it can't be easy and, and and also, I, I, you know, I don't think it's entirely their fault. I mean, um, I, I think that the pressure cooker situation that they live in, where, you know, where they're exposed and visible to the degree that they are, that can't be easy. If I'd been, God knows what, a member of the royal family and you were to impose all the things that have happened on my life into that, it would read like a very, you know, it, it, would, it would be turbulent. And, uh, and, and you know, uh, I'm really grateful that, that every time I screw up in life and cut a full short, uh, that it's not being written about mm. and, and exposed. So, so I, do feel, I do feel for them, but at the same time, they have made some pretty disturbing decisions on occasions. And, yeah. and you know, so you've got to hug them and whack them. In equal measure, you know, because uh, because they are no different in that sense, you know. Uh, I want to talk about the, um, just briefly about the threat of the Cold War and kind of what that, you know, kind of, there's, 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 there's events that happened. I just imagine that that's 
an exciting theme to write about in a way. Unfortunately, the, the, the great problem with episode one uh, is that it had to be an episode one. Uh, which is the worst thing you can ask any episode to be because it, it's so much easier to write a mid-season episode uh, where you have no obligations to do introductoritis, you know, <laughs> you know, basil exposition. Yeah. <laughs> and here comes a character. I am this person, by the way, and my agenda is this, 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 this and this. I wish that I'd come to, the, uh, to this season so that one could relish the fact that there was a KGB spy in Buckingham Palace and the suspicion was that there was a KGB spy in Downing Street and, and that one could really draw that out and one could really plant that into... And we had to take quite a lot of stuff out that we filmed there. It was a, that was a very, very challenging episode, episode one, because had it come mid-season... Uh, I can tell you there would have been all sorts of spies meeting in Washington and there would have been all sorts of stuff that we had to take out because actually the first order of business, particularly in the first 15 minutes of the first episode, is to say to people, this is Helena Bonham Carter and she's not going to be playing Princess Margaret. Uh, th- this is Olivia Colman. This, this is yeah. Tobias Menzies, you know. Yeah. And to let an audience just sit sit with them for a little bit and... Um, and, and it is therefore, it's the only episode in which you are having to make concessions to storytelling. And, and I'm sure every writer, you know, would agree with me, mm. you know, get, just get that first step out of the way and then you can actually start writing. Yeah. I love the little, there's such little nuances, the way that Olivia reacts to all, you know, the kind of gossip about the, the spy. And, you know, every time it's insinuated that it's Wilson and her kind of reaction to at the dinner table and it's it's just it's really subtle, but it's just a lovely tone of kind of like of kind of um, like comedy in a way that she's, you know, her kind of like gasping. I think at one point we had a cut where I think about 400 people had told her if Wilson might be a spy. (laughs) And we all looked at one another and said, do you think we're overdoing the Wilson the spy bit? And... So we have turned it down. Trust me, there's a there's a much worse version of it hidden away somewhere. I hope it's on the extras. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think um, we I think we've made that point, Pete. Really? Are you sure? Um, and lastly, on on episode one, the the kind of new family dynamics, you know, in terms of where Elizabeth and Philip's relationship is, but then also Margaret and Tony, and where they are with their relationship as well. And like you say, you have to introduce all that kind of because those stories and relationships have to develop in whatever way they do throughout the series yeah and and people have to get used to different faces you know don't don't forget people like you know vanessa kirby you know they're very very strong flavor to her performance Mm. and you know helena bonham carter neither particularly looks like her nor was making any deliberate concession to what vanessa kirby had been doing and so uh, it takes, you need a bit of time. Mm-hmm. But what we cast with Helena Bonham Carter, and it was a particularly inspired bit of casting, I think, by Nina Gold, was, you know, a, the internal map of, of, of somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really brave to do that and because they really don't look like one another at all, uh, Vanessa Kirby and um, Helena Bonham Carter. But it was so interesting to see in so many pieces of behaviour, just as you're hanging out on set, as you turn up to rehearsal, you know, the, the, I would say the chaos, but, but, but as it were, the tumult that, um, that Helena Bonham Carter brings into a room was 
an absolute replica of what used to happen with Vanessa Kirby and, and, and the way she texts, you know, the way you get text messages from both of them. They write identical text messages. And, <laughs> and you suddenly realise, oh, my God. Nina Gold had been so perceptive in casting a spirit. Yeah. And, and so I, I hope that works. You know, I hope that works. Oh, so sorry. That's my mum phone. So I thought that was definitely not protocol. Hi, mum. <laughs> I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode: Nina Gold, Robert Stern, and Peter Morgan. This is a production by Netflix and Something Else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us for our next episode, which goes behind the scenes of episode two, titled. Margaret Ology, which features the gripping performance of Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret. Isn't it possible that we've stumbled upon something here? You have far too much to do, far too much pressure, far too much responsibility. And I, too little. Having no role, having nothing to do, is soul-destroying. All I'm asking is if you were prepared to share a little more. For both our sakes. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.